the words, Shakespeare's words, those remain the same. But what you do with them, what a director can do to make them mean this or mean that, that is practically infinite. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. If you've gone to more than one production of a Shakespeare play, you're aware that no two theater directors treats his work the same way. When it comes to setting, when it comes to costumes, when it comes to casting, directors shape Shakespeare to make his work exactly what they want it to be. In fact, there is a joke in the theater that that's one of the reasons why directors love to do Shakespeare. You can do whatever you want with him and not worry about him sending you a nasty gram or calling you out on Twitter. It's with this sense of infinite possibility in mind that we invited in two theater directors for a conversation about how they approach the works of Shakespeare. Laura Gordon is a Milwaukee-based freelance theater director who's done a lot of Shakespeare work in the West. She directed Shakespeare at Utah State University, at Santa Cruz Shakespeare, and also the Notre Dame Shakespeare Festival. Vivian Benish is the artistic director of Playmakers Rep at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. She's directed Shakespeare at the Shakespeare Theater of New Jersey, at Chautauqua, at Juilliard, and last year here at the Folger, where she did a wonderful production of Love's Labor's Lost. While there are only two of the hundreds of directors who work in Shakespeare, we think you'll agree that their ideas offer a window into the special care directors take when they're given the opportunity to work in this special realm. A note before we start, Laura recorded herself at home in Milwaukee. Viv recorded herself at her mother's apartment in Manhattan. We call our podcast a bill of properties such as our play wants. Viv and Laura are interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Let's start with the beginning of the whole process. And I'm curious, and I'm going to ask each of you in turn, who gets to decide that you'll be directing a Shakespeare play? I mean, is Shakespeare a favorite or are classical plays a favorite? And Laura, let's start with you. Uh, classical plays are favorites for me. I love Shakespeare, but I'm a freelance director and I started as an actor I've always been in the position where a Shakespeare play has been offered to me to direct. I've never been in a position where I dreamed up some great version of a Shakespeare play that I wanted to do and pitched it to a company. That's just not how my career has gone. And how about you, Viv? Well, for me, what's been fun, of course, as an artistic director, you do get to do that. And then you have to decide whether you keep it for yourself or you give it to another <laughs> artist. And uh, people say, well, how do you approach Shakespeare? And I was like, no, it's you approach everything else like you approach Shakespeare rather than approaching Shakespeare like everything else. I was first, and similar to you, Laura, an actor first. And as I started directing, it was actually the Shakespeare Theater of New Jersey, where I had played several roles. And they asked me to do Richard III. Um, but the only one I pitched 
was a multidisciplinary Romeo and Juliet with the symphony, with the opera company, with the theater company, and the ballet. So that was pretty exciting. Oh, and that leads right into my next question, which is when you know you'll be directing uh, Shakespeare, what do you attack first? I mean, with the multidisciplinary (laughs) idea, clearly you had this vision. But is it the setting? Is it deciding what to cut? What, What do you attack first? Um, I'll start by saying, unlike nearly every other opportunity that I get as a director with Shakespeare, I love to watch every production I can get my hands on. And that is so untrue of anything else because I like to sort of keep what's my personal vision, (laughs) what's the way I'm going to sort of really be original. But with Shakespeare, I feel like the first thing I want to do, other than delving into the text, is find out, like, what is the problem solving and how are relationships and themes and story brought to life by every other version I can find? Because in that case, much like the Romanian director, Liviu Chule, used to say, originality is just the sign of not enough information. Um, <laughs> and uh, that's with, unusual, though. I mean, that really is. Most people, a lot of people try to avoid the you know, blurring their vision with other people's vision. Laura, what do, what do you do? No, I would agree with Viv on that. I'm, and also agreeing that in plays other than Shakespeare, I don't necessarily want to see what anyone else has done. But there's so mm-hmm. much room for interpretation that I just like to see what other people are doing. Um, the other thing that I've noticed about my career with Shakespeare is that my approaches to the plays vary greatly depending on the theater that I'm working at, depending on what the tradition of that theater is and what the expectations are and what the audience is. I Mm. I started by directing, and this was a number of years ago, but at the Utah Shakespeare Festival, which was a much more traditional approach to the work and things, they were under new artistic directorship at the time, so things were beginning to change. But it was coming out of a culture where, you know, you set those plays during Shakespeare's lifetime. You know, it's like like the, the window was small in terms of where you could go. And then I've also done a couple of shows at Uh, Santa Cruz Shakespeare, which is a company that's committed to gender parity, where 50% of the cast are men and 50% are women. And and so the decision making comes from how am I going to use those women in a non-traditional way and what kind of world supports that decision. So so it's been cool. Yeah, and so specific. But what about scholarship and scholarly texts and and secondary sources and things like, you know, reading about Elizabethan history and Shakespeare's life or scholarly works on the specific play in question? Are you reading those as well? And Laura, you can start with that. Um, I'm not doing that too much. No, (laughs) I think, um, you know, I'm I'm counting on. um, It's for me, it's the text. And then once we decide on a world... If I need to dive into Vienna history or something for the setting for Measure for Measure, then I'll do that kind of research. But it's more in terms, I think that research for me is more in terms of the work with coming up with what things are going to look like and where it's going to take place. How about you, Vivian? For me, the sort of dramaturgy part of it is ongoing. And if we're lucky enough to have a dramaturg on hand to sort of build the world of resources for the design team and the cast, that is always fantastic. But for me, in terms of scholarship, it is always just going back to 
the text before you even get to world of play to see what is evoked in all the clues that Shakespeare gives you. So once that is really done, certainly I I love to read uh, Asimov's previews to Shakespeare to each of the plays are fantastic and give you a, a sort of historical context. And certainly the source materials, I, it, you know, I'm not going to go read the source material for Two Noble Kinsmen beyond knowing that it exists and what the stories were and knowing that. I don't feel necessarily that mining those texts is as helpful as thinking about what the play is for us today. Right. And you said, though, at first you you go straight to what other people have done. Can you give me an example of a movie or or recording of a play that you've watched and it it set you on a certain course, either gave you an idea, inspired something, or you thought, no, no, I want to go there. I was doing a production of Much Ado About Nothing, and I inevitably, you know, watched the Kenneth Branagh, Emma Thompson, so beautifully set in the rolling hills of the Italian countryside. And I loved the film, but for me, what was great about watching it was that it it hit all this sort of sense of romance to me, but didn't get to the underlying textual machismo. You know, there's always the especially in male behavior in many a Shakespeare play, sort of the justification for why are they behaving this way? Oh my God. And in that machismo led me towards, well, we wound up in in Cuba of the 1930s, but the film really, really helped me understand, again, the romance, the breeziness, the darkness of it, and for me, what was missing, and really start me investigating other options than the Italianite option that he had actually written it for. Interesting. And Laura, you also did a Much Ado in in Santa Cruz, right? Yeah. And uh, again, that's linking back to the casting, you know, sort of being one of the driving ideas with coming up with the world for the play. I had spoken with the artistic director, Mike Ryan, and he had some ideas about where we might use some of the women non-traditionally. And so we decided, and we had a great actress to play Leonato, but playing mm. it as Leonata, um, so as Hero's mother. And then also we had a woman playing Antonia, so we turned it turned into a matriarchal family. So I needed to come up with a way to have a world that made sense with that truth. And so we settled on, uh, it was right after World War II with the troops coming home. Uh, the women were at home running the vineyard. Dogberry was not, he had really bad vision, <laughs> like really like co- <laughs> Coke bottle glasses so that he wasn't able to go off and fight. And the watch were, uh, you know, the Boy Scouts that were too young to fight. So we had to kind of come up with a world that made sense for that kind of casting. And I thought it worked really, really well. And there's an interesting thing that happens when you put a woman into a role that is traditionally played by a man and you hear the play in a different way. And it was, I don't know, I thought it was really cool. And now I want to play Leonardo. (laughs) Oh, my God. Now, I'm fascinated by that, Laura, because, well, specifically given what I was just talking about, that I'm so curious what that was like in terms of that, again, that sort of 
what I sort of found and, and mined within that sort of male toxicity, when right. you put women in the parental roles there, what did that, I'm so curious what that did. Well, I found it so interesting to have a, a mother say those things to a daughter, you know, when mm-hmm. Hero at the wedding. It, it, it was super painful to hear. Like, it's always ha- painful to hear the father say that to a daughter anyway, but having it coming out of the mouth of a mother was was an incredible experience. But then to have the mother, once she realizes what has actually happened, to defend her daughter, and, and that great little scene with Antonio and Leonardo kind of taken on Claudio, uh, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and, and to have these women kind of roaring up to the defense of this girl, I found really, really powerful. And I think that for audiences that have seen Much Ado many times, I think it was, oh, let me listen to this play in in a different way. And for people who hadn't seen Much Ado, that was just the reality of what it was that they were seeing. It gives women such agency. It's the women saving the women. And standing and the scene, by them. Yeah, and yeah. the scene before the party, you know, the scene before the mask turned into, it was a scene of all women, mm. you know, before that party. So I don't know, I found the dynamic really, really cool, personally. While we're talking about casting, uh, I have a whole bunch of casting questions. And, and the first is a really basic one. How concerned are you that your actors have experience with Shakespeare when you're casting, that the language is already in their mouths? Vivian? For me, it's not a question of Shakespeare or not. It's literally a sense of a love of language, mm-hmm. a love of language and desire to express, much like in musicals, the need to sing, the need to express through this language. Uh, it doesn't so much have to do with, oh, I've studied it, I know, I do end stops at the end of, you know, right. a particular <laughs> technique or a particular, it's really yeah, not I like, that. I, I kind of think of it as, as like, an athletic event almost you know it's like I want yeah I want actors who are able to you know kind of chew this language and love this language I mean I'm a real geek and I'm sure you are too Viv yep. of you know of what you've been are you geek sorry um of what you were saying just about about the text and I can mm-hmm. I get really excited by the acting clues that are there to to follow and so it's like I want actors that Maybe they don't know all of that. Probably they do, but but are open to it and are open to saying, "Oh, here's a scene. This is um, Olivia and Viola, and the scene is in prose until it turns to verse." Like I find that really exciting, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. and so that you go, well, "Why is it turned to verse?" Like like we need mm-hmm. to notice that and make mm-hmm. a decision about it. And so I like actors that are willing to get in there and chew it around. I mean, the I the totally inverse agree. of that would be, do you find that actors sometimes come to Shakespeare with tics or habits that they're not even aware of because they've watched so many of the greats or, or have acted the roles before? Yes, it's amazing in auditions when you, you meet someone and you're having a nice conversation with them and suddenly their voice completely changes when they go into the material and you're like, wait, wait, <laughs> I want to hear you. I want to hear you speaking these, not some idea of a Shakespearean sound. I mean, it, right. that, it's less than it used to be, but it still prevails. And on the converse, people, it is really worthwhile to know how and have the technique to be able to deliver a five or six or seven line thought in one breath. 
when people can do that and take the parentheticals and get in there and boom and that is technique and experience. Yeah, that's skill and, and that that's um, you know, that's experience and uh I think one of my biggest pet peeves quite honestly with a lot of actors and Shakespeare is is breaking up the text and putting in pauses that don't need to be there. So like encouraging actors to <laughs> to realize that these characters think faster than we do, you know, that we can't, we can't take that. It's like if um, Leontes actually took the time to think his way through these speeches, he, you know, the play wouldn't happen. Blair you know, it's nine, like that is an hours long. Example. <laughs> you know, if he really thought about it, he would know he was being an idiot. You know? And now the big overarching casting question, and maybe you've answered part of it with uh, the discussion about Much Ado and, and um, switching around the, the gender assignments, but how do you think about ethnicity and gender and, and casting? And, and are we at a new place with uh, freedom or taboos in relation to any of this? And I'm, I'm thinking of one of our guests on this podcast, uh, the director, Peter Brook. He just rejects the mm-hmm. term colorblind casting altogether. He says we should never, mm-hmm. that's, that's a terrible phrase. We should call it color welcome casting. So, huh. uh, Laura, why don't you take that one first? Well, I am just interested in the way that these plays, I I find it, I mean, obviously, we're still doing them, you know, we've been doing them for hundreds of years, and they stand the test of time. And I think what keeps them relevant is the different voices that get to speak these words. And so just as I think an audience member can hear something different with the words coming out of the the mouth of a woman, I think we maybe hear these plays in a different way when they're coming from actors of color in a way that we haven't heard before. So I find it all really, really exciting. First of all, there's no question that Shakespeare and far too few authors, but Shakespeare certainly has entered into a place where our interpretations and the social context with which they were written is far more universal and expansive than that. I mean, um, we don't worry anymore about the fact that Henry VIII looked the way he did. We are enough removed from it um, to be able to make jumps. And I completely agree with Laura that hearing all of these characters in come from a variety of voices is part of the wonder of it. But I think as we're working on productions where, yes, I, I will happily call it color welcome, where you are choosing not to base it in a specific uh, socio-political context or those productions where you are specifically doing that. It's, there are so many ways in which if you want it to be specific, then you have to be very color conscious and otherwise (laughs) color welcome. And both are okay, but don't avoid the choice. Well, it's complicated, but it sounds so open-ended and I can hear the the excitement in your voices. But what about gender and, and ethnicity for that matter and the business of theater? I mean, we see discrimination against women directors in film and television and opera and nearly every profession. So how does being women affect your choices or opportunities in in theater? 
Laura. Well, I'm excited about <laughs> I'm excited about the future. Um, you know, I kind of you know I I worked as an actor for a long time. I still do, but you know, I was doing Shakespeare festivals in the '80s where I was one of three women who were hired for the mm-hmm. season with 20 men. And while it was great for my social life, um, I got a, you know did a lot of nice dating during those summers. But um, <laughs> I never even entertained the idea that I would be playing Prospero one day. Um, and so I find like this whole new world kind of opened up. I'm like, damn, I, you know, I need somebody needs to hire me to, to play some of these roles. And if there wasn't, you know, a worldwide pandemic, I would be playing Prospero this summer, um, mm. which, uh, you know, I just get another year to dream about it. Um, but, it, you know, it will hopefully happen. So I'm just seeing so many more things opening up. Um, and we've seen, and Viv is a great example of this, we've, we've seen a lot of women take on artistic director roles, um, and that helps this conversation as well, and also people of color. I, the word opportunity that you use, Laura, to me means everything. And, and again, as an artistic director, that is <laughs> one of the most important credos for me is how am I giving uh, women opportunities? Um, you know, in no way do I feel like a trailblazer, not at all. Right. I feel very much in the sort of, it's interesting, I feel in the middle of the pack in the sense <laughs> that I want to be a facilitator for what I think is a huge wave coming forward. Um, but I feel like I'm standing on the shoulders of some of the great foundationalists <laughs> of the at least the 20th century foundationalist that gave us structure and form and even what was seen as avant-garde in the middle of the 20th century i'm so curious what that's going to be in the middle of the 21st i directed a, a production of romeo and juliet a couple of summers ago in Santa Cruz, and we had a, a woman playing Tybalt as a woman, and uh, Benvolio as well. And we had this group of like Girl Scouts, Girl Scout camp night or something, you know, that they had all come early and they were there for the fight call. And so they were watching the, this really amazing fighter, you know, this woman taking, you know, playing Tybalt, going through her fight call. And these girls were like, so excited and screaming, girl power, girl power. And I just thought, you know, traditionally, for a young woman, your way into that play is Mm -hmm. through Juliet. And to have a way into the play for a young person watching to have it be through Tybalt to have it be through Benvolio was just such an interesting like, I never had that. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. I, I want to talk some more about setting of, of these plays because it's, it's a real risk. I mean, you can turn off an audience, I suppose, or that's happened by a setting that doesn't click. Um, so, Laura, are you a director who likes to set classical plays in a specific period or they, do they take place either in their own time or in no fixed time? Do you like, do you even think there is such a thing as setting a Shakespeare play in no fixed time in the world of the imagination? In the world of the imagination, I think what I've had success with a couple of times, which I kind of like, because, you know, we don't, obviously we don't, want these plays to feel dusty to you know let me take you back in time to tell this story you know we want them to feel fresh but i'll use that romeo and juliet as an example 
the biggest questions driving the decision about how to set that production, since we had a woman playing Tybalt, was what weapons are they going to fight with? And what does Tybalt wear to the party? <laughs> you know, like, what is the she going to <laughs> You know, but I mean, it really did drive a lot of the decision making because I didn't want to update it in a way that begged the question about guns. I still wanted to have sword fights. I still wanted to use mm-hmm. rapier and dagger. But I wanted these women in these roles fighting. Um, and so it was sort of, it was like keeping the silhouette of the Italian Renaissance. And so you kind of create this world that's, you can still do the fights the way you want to do them, but the period is referenced. And I think it works, you know, for certain plays, I think it works pretty well. I did a Richard III that was similar in that way. I often like, you know, kind of Googling, you know, Italian Renaissance runway fashion, you know, and then then (laughs) you, you see a lot of Alexander McQueen, you're like, that is very cool. And it's very fresh, but it still has a reference to another time. Who, what, where in the Renaissance. (laughs) (laughs) And it's born, but here's the thing, that is born again of the world of the play. It it, it can hold that beautifully. And there's a, a range there where I get really frustrated with productions is where they're trying to squeeze a concept yeah. and a time period onto exactly. something uh, and, and forego. It gets so distracting. It distracts yeah. you from the text, from the words, the poetry. It really does. It really does. And, you know, that's my thing about, like, cell phones, um, where <laughs> productions that use cell phones. <laughs> um, it's like, you know, there is the occasional some – I've seen it work brilliantly – but it's also okay. What Shakespeare allows us is to set something in contemporary world and have no cell phones. That works too, because he was mm-hmm. not consistent either. Like he's asking us to believe, you know, that no one recognizes Ganymede versus Rosalind, you know. But we, the the jumps of imagination that are theatrical that we all go on, we have to remember as we're creating a world that we should take those kinds of liberties as well, as long as what we are not taking liberties with is the story and the text that we're using to tell that story. Amen. And a very <laughs> practical question. I mean, Vivian, what about the physical theater space that you have to work with? How, how big a factor is that in influencing your decisions? Oh, well, that's so much fun. I mean, that's like, that's where director mana is right like the boundaries are your creative wellspring so if you have a a giant thrust and you're trying to you know achieve intimacy in that um in one moment and a a civil war in the next how you make space and light and this is why i think uh, lighting designers love shakespeare so much because they are so responsible when in productions where they can be um, for sort of shifting, you know, I don't know how you feel, Laura, but give me no transitions and I'm a happy girl in the sense of moving (laughs) furniture, moving that, again, the sort of rhythm of the play. And yet it's where a composer is also so, so important and your sound design is so important that you are sort of structuring the musicality of the play to keep going and not sort of start and stop and start and stop. So you you just asked a question about the space and my response is the creative team at large. Like it's so thrilling to work with a creative team on a Shakespeare production because every element 
whatever the restrictions are or the demands are, you cannot uh, achieve it separately from each other. Uh, Well, this is a very different category of question, but I guess the question is how much of what you do is aimed at provoking your audience or making your audience think, and how much is it about engaging them with this beautiful language and, and this, this playwright and this specific play? Are that, is that a false dichotomy, first of all? I'll start with you, Mark. <laughs> mm, right. I mean, I think, like, story is everything for me and the, the clarity of text and trusting the text. I mean, I get annoyed when physical comedy has to do the storytelling at the expense of the text or because they think people think that that's how you can get the message across to an audience. I get annoyed when the production design is overwhelming the text, isn't trusting Mm -hmm. the text. So, I mean, I think that there's a way to make the plays accessible through the language and to make them provoking through the story. You know, I think it's important for me to get to the end of a play like Measure for Measure and float out both possibilities of how that play can end. You know, it's like Shakespeare doesn't let Isabella say anything at the end. And when when I first started rehearsing that play, I thought, how can she possibly go with the Duke after this? How can she? No way can that happen. And then by working on the play and working with my actors, I went, oh, (laughs) I think that she might. I think that's actually kind of a good match. But then staging it in such a way that that, that's all kind of shimmering there and provoking an audience to make a decision. Okay, very direct question for directors. How much of the text do you consider cutting and why, Viv? Uh, Cutting Shakespeare may be my favorite hobby. Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to, can I call you the next time I need to cut? Yes. Uh, Thank you. I've got to say, like, I actually, and I will admit that it's not that I take joy in cutting what's, you know, what's there. It's that in the process of making a cut, you learn the text better than anything else. Mm -hmm. I compare it a little bit to working on a, a, a Chekhov depending on which translation you're working on, you have like seven translations at the table with you and you're looking at each one and trying to determine why the adapter or translator used the one they did. In a similar way, in the act of cutting Shakespeare, you are getting to what is essential, tracking the psychology, learning the rhythm. To me, it's really exciting. So it's like getting your hands into the guts of the play. Exactly. Exactly. But Laura, you don't feel that way? Oh, no, it's just torture. I mean, I, I agree <laughs> that it that it is a great way to learn the play, for sure. Um, it just every cut bleeds, you know, and some require triage in a different way. So it's it's I guess it's just that it's so time consuming. And I really do rely on bouncing my ideas off of off of other people. So you, you know, need second to, and third opinions? To continue your doctor, your medical metaphor. I do. I do. I, I agree with that. And and part of the rehearsal process that I love is being in conversation about a particular cut. And often I wind up putting something back. Or That's doing so a true. Yeah, I do recut, recall, you know, you count on the actor to know what it is that they feel like 
they might be missing. But, I, you know, I also don't want to take precious rehearsal time to rehearse material I'm not going to do. Oh. I'm really curious about this. What have you always dreamed of doing in a particular way? And what's kept you from doing it? Among Shakespeare plays, that is. Viv? So I really, this that interdisciplinary Ro- Romeo and Juliet, I just am dying to do that with many, many a Shakespeare play. It won't be as obvious as it was for Romeo and Juliet, where you have masterpieces of music, masterpieces of of dance, you know, and jazz. And it was so, to string that multidisciplinary retelling together was so obvious in that, where, you know, if you were to do that with King Lear, what operatic music or symphonic music is going to keep you on the story? It sounds very expensive, I've got to say. (laughs) Well, I will, I'll say this. Yes, the reason we were able to do it at Chautauqua is that there is a resident theater company, dance company, opera company, and symphony. Uh, so yes, you are absolutely right. And and you, Laura, what what would you? What's your dream production, and what's keeping you from doing it? Well, I'm going to be truthful here. I've never been a big bucket list person, so I don't have like a dream production. Although. Because I'm facing unemployment for the foreseeable future, now is my time to begin, you know, dreaming, to be, begin dreaming of, of something. And the plays that are, are really kind of bubbling to the surface for me, uh, I kind of want to wrap my brain around a winter's tale right now. And then also, interestingly, I never, ever, ever was interested in comedy of errors. You know, I just, I thought that's just not my, that's not my <laughs> thing. And now I'm thinking, Wow. We really need to laugh right now. So I, oh. I, let me wrap my brain around something completely goofy. That might be fun. I'm excited to see what you come up with for Winter's Day. Me too. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I want to come see that. Um, <laughs> well, thank you both for such a fun and really heartening conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. What a pleasure. <laughs> Laura Gordon has worked in Shakespeare as an actor since 1984 and as a director since 2011. She has played Adriana in The Comedy of Errors, The Princess of France in Love's Labor's Lost, and Mariana in Measure for Measure, among others. As director, she staged Romeo and Juliet and Much Ado About Nothing in Santa Cruz at the Santa Cruz Shakespeare, The Winner's Tale, Measure for Measure, and Love's Labor's Lost at the Utah Shakespeare Festival, and Richard III for Shakespeare at Notre Dame. Vivian Benish is the producing artistic director of Playmakers Repertory Company based at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. Before that, she was artistic director of the Chautauqua Theater Company and Conservatory. She's also directed at the Shakespeare Theater of New Jersey, Trinity Repertory Company, and Red Bull Theater, among others. Last year at the Folger, she helmed our production of Love's Labor's Lost. Viv and Laura were interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Our podcast, A Bill of Properties Such as Our Play Wants, was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer. We had technical help from Andrew Feliciano and Paul Luke at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California. If you are a fan of Shakespeare Unlimited, 
please leave us a review on whatever platform you get the podcast from. That's a really important way to get the word out about the work we're doing here, especially to people who don't know about the podcast already. Thank you. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge and the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. Thanks for listening. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.